Episode 27 of the Embrace the Suck podcast, the only official licensed, sanctioned, nutritionally balanced, and mom-recommended podcast of APG, bringing you two cents worth of free perspective on the heavy-hitting lifestyle. We have a special guest joining us today I'll be introducing soon, but first, I'm your host today, Rob Stella, coming to you almost live from Fukuoka, Japan, where a Japanese baseball team has replaced its fans with cheerleading, dancing robots. Yep. This is real life today. Uh, I think it looks weird seeing cardboard cutouts and cheer tracks playing during regular basketball and baseball games today, but this is like next level insanity. The craziest thing is when you uh, look at the video is these robots aren't even all human shaped. Uh, The ones cheering actually look like dogs as well. It almost looks like it's a flash mob doing some kind of dance routine during the game. So, like, what's the creative thought process behind that? Like, seriously, there's no crowd to put it in perspective. It's the baseball players playing, maybe some cardboard cutouts, but they got these robots over there doing these flash mob dances. So, who's this for? Like, are the players stopping to play to enjoy some creepy dancing robot dogs during the game? It makes no sense. So, it looks like Skynet has finally gone live. And it won't be long until these robots become self-aware, decide the human population is unnecessary, and take over our defense computers to annihilate the human (laughs) population. Uh, This will probably be our last episode, folks. It's been a great run, and I wish you all well. And and you know Arnold is sitting around at home watching this in anticipation as he waxes his chest and armor all his old leather pants waiting for the uh, all-go signal. So while you let that marinate a little bit, let me introduce you to our guest today. I've known this guy since we trained together back in Buds. He served at SEAL Team 3 during the Battle of Ramadi, is a decorated combat leader, a yoga master, a doctoral student, and the world record cup stacking champion, the Navy SEAL chief himself, Ray Baviera. Ray. Hey, uh, hey, I appreciate it. Hey, uh, yeah, I didn't, you went to Buds with me? Are you kidding me? I I have I don't remember you ever. At that's any the funny evolution. thing is I retreaded through Bud, so that's going to be in another episode <laughs> one day. But uh, I, I got in trouble as a SEAL and had to go back through training. So I've actually graduated SEAL training twice, class two fifteen, and then I went through class two five zero. Luckily, I didn't have to do first phase. They almost had me do first phase minus Hell Week. I joined you guys and. I was in my 30s at that point. So you, myself, and Daly were all 33 years old, and it was insane. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just joking, Rob. I remember you vividly from the time you were staying on the hills while we were going to and fro, the, you know, getting uh, wet, you know, wet and That's sandy. hilarious, man, because I seriously, I, I was very uh, cautious because I'm like, dude, maybe this guy's PTSD is worse than I thought. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to massage this and not make him feel bad. <laughs> you had me going, bro. Maybe mine is so bad. I oh, man. Yeah, I just got to go, and that's awesome. That yeah, hey, I appreciate good. it, man. I appreciate you inviting me on here. Yeah. I'm you got it. Talking. But seriously, I think it's uh, important to understand they don't let people in their 30s in training uh, very often, especially these days. It's, it's so competitive anyway, but – Uh, Tell everyone how it was being in your 30s trying to go through buds with all these 24-year-old goofballs, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, that was my my first rodeo at buds, right? So going through buds was easy for me, easier. It wasn't easy. Right. It was just easier because I kind of knew what to expect all through the phases. And I I was in 225 before that. And, you know, this is pre-9-11, right, 1999. And I, you know, I was dropping training like three weeks, eh, two and a half, maybe three weeks away from graduation. So I kind of understood. Wow. Yeah, I understood what, what was coming, right? So it was easier. I already kind of, there was really no uncertainty for me, right? I'm really sure there was some, you had to embrace the suck, right? That's part right. of buzz is just sucking it up because you know it's just going to hurt. It's just that 
you know that the kick in the nuts is coming for lack of better words. But, but as you know, going through it older, I was obviously more mature, right? You know, right. so I was able to, uh, when, when you're talking about interactions with the instructor, I was able to interact with the instructor in a more <laughs> mature way. That's what we will. didn't get when we were younger and we just, everything's a joke <laughs> and we just got yeah, working yeah. on ourselves. But it's sure. Learn how to kind of smooth them and how to yeah. work the system. You got to work them, right? You got to work yeah. them. It's like anything else. But, you know, honestly, like I go home every night sore. You know, I was like, actually, I was 30, right? I was 30 years old. And at first I thought I was the, well, I was being treated as the old guy there until, until you guys came along, right? Because Mike didn't come on until about, I think, post-Hell Week. Yeah, or... he joined 250 in post-Hell Week because he yeah. and I, when I showed up to the center, they put me in rollback land, and that's where I met him, and then we both joined you guys in, in uh, yeah. days. Yeah, so, you know, it, it was refreshing to say, all right, I'm no longer the old guy, but I'm still the old guy getting all the attention because, you know, right. I was... I had actually I wasn't the LPO of the class right away, right? It was, it was Henry, right? Henry G. So, so that a lot of that stuff was <clears throat> I wasn't getting focused on. But yeah, it was it was a lot harder, man. Um, in the sense of my motivate, not mo my motivation so much, but my body's motivation, right? Right. To recover, dude. Right. It was the worst part. Yeah. I, I have to agree with you uh, because I had already graduated in the past. There wasn't a lot of surprises. But recovering, like when I was in my early 20s, you're ready to go the next day. But when you're 30-something, it's like, dude, yeah. I'm still in pain from three days ago, and I got to go back into this? That was miserable. It was miserable. And, you know, people ask me how hard Buds is, and it's, it's honestly, it's really not that hard, right? The, the thing that makes it the hardest is it's just continuous. Mm -hmm. And two, it's always, you're always wet and cold. Yeah. Right? If you take away those three things, most people will make it through. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. There's nothing worse than, I, I mean, it, and it haunts you for the rest of your life. There's some team guys that go SDVs where they're underwater all the time. That's just, but uh, <laughs> like my daughter, when she was young, my wife's like, well, why don't you go in the pool with her? I'm like, I'm going there. That's cold. She's like, you're supposed to be a seal. <laughs> like, yeah. I've been tortured with cold. That's you funny. Don't you get in that pool, you know? People yeah, that's funny. Ooh, I don't like this. I, I can't even swim and stay warm. I got to stand there with her while she floats around. It's like, but, you, but you know, you know, <laughs> but here's the thing with that too, is like you hate the water, right? On your off time, you get this kind of hydrophobia, you right? Do. Cause you know, you're right. I, I, you know, I passed by the ocean. I would like put that in my chair when my, you know, we're driving past Del Mar, right? Off the five. And I don't want to even want to look at the ocean. But that being said, I remember times of, I, and I was talking to a friend of mine because he was interested in asking, hey, what's being a SEAL like? I said, well, there's a lot of times you're so tired that you'll sleep just about anywhere. Yeah. And I remember, um, and you know what I'm talking about. We do oh, yeah. combat swimmer, right? And then when we do combat swimmer, we send two people up to do sort of the scouting effort, right? Before the entire platoon comes up so we won't get all compromised. So I told him like, yeah, there's times I slept at the bottom just sleeping closing my eyes yeah my mind is still active but my mind is my i'm sleeping just kind of relaxing at the bottom of the ocean just breathing my rebreather right yeah. and he was like this doesn't leak as i pass out yeah and shivering right shivering just yeah. he goes what the heck i'm like yeah you just you just kind of get accustomed to that and you're just gonna have to find moments of peace and relaxation before the uh, the, uh, the mission starts right well, the last episode, Clark was laughing about the fact that just trying to leave your shower and go the three feet to get to your towel is miserable these days. <laughs> it's like, that, just to put it in perspective, I mean, think about that, dude. It's, it was just, it's one of those things that you, you don't want anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, when I, I had to, retired, happy it's over. <laughs> I tell you what, though, you know, I, I came back home to Hawaii and the water's a lot warmer. And, you know, like I had a lot of stresses when I came out, right? A lot of post-retirement anxiety. And then I just went, I did some body surfing and it really cleared my mind. Yeah, it, it those outlets are crucial, especially when you retire. Yeah. I didn't have the time to unpack things while I was on active duty. And it wasn't until I was retiring that things started to unpack and you need to find an outlet for that and learn how to unpack those things. So I, I do, I see a lot of your, uh, 
your your videos online to where you seem to always be doing handstands and yoga wherever you are. Uh, and you moved to Hawaii, which is sounds like it's your happy place. Tell me about that, man. Well, you know, I you know, I, I grew up in Hawaii, right? I, I'm originally from here. I, I wasn't born here, but I was, I'm originally from here. Growing up here, it's it's what we do. Outdoor activities is what we do. We don't stay indoors. We go hiking. There's so many hiking spots here, right? Um, or you're engaged in some kind of water activity, right? Whether it's surfing or paddleboarding, or they have these surfboards with the the, the kites now, right? So yeah, they look awesome. Man. Yeah, they look fun. But I, I'm like, uh, I don't. I probably hurt myself doing that. Your now. wife's like, you're you're gonna be in the hospital after that. <laughs> it's your wife can do that. I get that all the time. Anytime I go to do something. She goes, you're old now. <laughs> thanks for the reminder. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, um, you know, but no, I feel once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, I'm a, I'm a frog man, right? And, you know, my daughter goes, I know, dad. I know you're a frog man. You know, so sometimes I try to remind her, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm still tough. I can still do certain things. She so. wouldn't dare roll her eyes at old frog man dad, though, would you? <laughs> My wife does. <laughs> the whole family does. It's, they imitate uh, me. That's the best. They yeah. <laughs> but no, Hawaii is a great place to grow up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course, it's isolated from the mainland. There's a real family-oriented mentality here, the aloha spirit, right? Um, it's a great place to grow up. I mean, um, it's not for everybody. I got family who come visit here from the mainland on my wife's side, and they're like, I couldn't live here. It's probably amazing understand. right now, though, because there's not a lot of visitors, are there? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Like, So before the whole COVID hit, we were in the big island and the COVID was sort of, it's hit, but not so hard, right? And everything was, there's not a lot of tourists. We were able to go on the trails. It wasn't crowded, which was wonderful, right? You go to the beaches, it's wonderful. There's not a whole lot of tourists here, but it's really impacting the economy. You know, one of its primary incomes is tourism. So many businesses taking heavies on that and that that's horrible for that side of the house. I'm not going to get into the whole political sense of it, but, you know, one thing I find interesting is that a lot of our elected officials and, you know, I, I, I don't like to call them leaders while they fill these positions of leadership, primarily because in my studies, it's about 90% of those in leadership positions have not received leadership training, official, like some kind of leadership training. That's an unfortunate That's huge, truth. Right. Yeah. So when you look at the elected leaders before all COVID hit, right, they were operating in a place of comfort and predictability and certainty. And then COVID-19 hit and now it's uncertain. Right. There's a lot of uncertainty, right? So if you look at our seal ethos, the first sentence is that in times of war, of uncertainty, yeah. there is a special breed of war ready to answer our nation's call. Because as SEALs, we thrive and embrace uncertainty. Absolutely. It makes us better and it makes us innovative. It's that innovative thought that comes to like, okay, how can I make this better so that we can operate still at this level or even not higher, right? Yeah, and it's a perfect caveat into what our topic for the day is, which is about performance under pressure, but it's being able to handle that uncertainty and put it into something that you can actually chew. Sure. All right, man. So I know a lot of people have heard about the Battle of Ramadi and whatnot, and that was your first deployment at SEAL Team 3, correct? That was. That was my first deployment. And, you know, during the workup, you know, you know, all the platoon, well, the task units are all training and competing to choose where they're going to go, right? Right. Uh, of course, that's at the, the task unit level, right? You're talking about the commander level, and they're all deciding that. And when they finally this, you know, chose which task unit was going to go to Iraq, it was exciting. It was exciting for all, especially us new guys, right? It was me, Tom, and Mikey Mansoor, right? Amongst the other guys in, in, in my sister platoon, Charlie platoon, Biff, and Dauber, you know, who wrote The Last Punisher, and Biggles. And then you yeah. had Mark Lee. So we were all super excited going like, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to see war, this, that, and the other. And there's something that my chief... Dale said, you know, he was our buzz instructor, right? Dale, mm -hmm. Dale F. Yep. So he, he goes, hey, just be careful what you got, what you asked for. And then when we went to Ramadi, he goes, hey, now you're about to get what you're asking for. Just be careful. Right? right? Yeah. Um, right. Because during that time, you know, Time Magazine had it. And I wrote articles, I wrote papers about this when I was in grad school, is that 
Ramadi was considered one of the most dangerous places on earth for the, for Americans. As a matter of fact, it was also called the graveyard of the American soldier Yeah, because Marines, primarily Marines and army soldiers were dying, whether they were being, you know, on the street or just IEDs, this, that, and the other. So it was an interesting experience. It was exciting, but at the same time, a little bit terrifying. Right. Right. And I, and I think that uh, that statement by your chief, that, that just shows his experience because every SEAL trains hard to be employed and, and we want to go to work. doesn't mean, you know, we're, we're warmongers and we just want to go to war, but we want to be utilized. Uh, we spend all this time training and getting ready. We want to be utilized, but it comes with great caution. It's like we were, we won for lack of a better word bid to go to Afghanistan we were completely excited but it comes with a lot of understanding and respect on what that means absolutely and you know it is those little nuggets that whether you know it or not right will prepare you for future conflicts especially what we used to do right so um, I mean if we advance it years later you know I was more calm under pressure not that I wasn't there I learned through that first deployment, calm is contagious, right? They teach you that calm is contagious, calm is contagious because we're SEAL operators, right? We're not supposed to be fearful or at least show this, right? Amongst the regular army guys or the regular Marines or whomever are out there, they're supposed to, because a lot of people are looking up to us. Yeah. Um, So we had to sort of put on this facade. I mean, we're already kind of into ourselves to some degree, right? Some of us are ego, egotistical and, um, yeah, that's, you know, that that's we're not all like that, but, right. um, at the same time, we're humble about it. Right. Absolutely. So we, we show that we, we're very humble about it. We don't go out, you know, saying, Hey, look at me, bow down when you see my shadow type thing. Right. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hey, that being said, when we were out there, my SEAL platoon was out there, a green beret unit came in. Keep in mind, we were working under the army. Right. Yeah, People so, don't understand that even as SEALs, we don't own the battle spaces we're working in. So we're actually, as Navy, working for an Army commander. Correct. Correct. So uh, a Green Beret team came in and they were, the 03s were bumping heads. My commander, Seth Stone, with their, their captain. And the captain had the dad says, hey, your guys are going home, man. And we're Army. You work for Army. We're sending you guys home. Guess who went home? Yeah. The, the Green Berets went home because they were arrogant. Yeah, we were super humble. But anyway, back to your question, I think that the first deployment was, it was insane, man. It was insane. It, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was tired because we were operating nearly every day. We, we talk a lot with uh, clients, especially on handling disturbances. Well, you guys, that, that was Ramadi on steroids. There wasn't, I mean, not only was every day some kind of major disturbance, it was like hour to hour <laughs> handling disturbances. So... Take us through a little bit, especially as a new guy where everything's overwhelming because everything's new, what it was like handling those disturbances during this deployment and staying driven and focused. Yeah, I think that you talk about focus there. And if you focus on a lot of things, it's just going to compact what you have to really focus on. Right. So as a new guy, I did not worry myself with, the mission planning. If someone was mission planning, the senior guys like, Hey Ray, we need you to do this. I would go do it because that's my tasking. Right. Right. Um, I wouldn't worry about the big picture. I would really worry about what's going on in front of me and what I can control. Um, otherwise you're going to over, you're going to task saturate yourself and you're going to start dropping things and you just won't be able to give enough attention to what you need to get accomplished. Um, and sometimes it just, you kind of have to at sometimes. Sometimes it just comes at you at one time and that's where you're going to have to start to manage expectations right. based on commander's intent and what you guys want to accomplish, right? Whatever the mission is, mission first, right? So, um, Well, I think that's what's important for a lot of our listeners to understand. It, it starts back in our training. One of the best lessons they teach us is how to prioritize and when it comes to combat, you know, a lot of people, they bag on the whole idea of prioritizing because it only focuses on what's urgent and important. 
But what we do is in our, the way we prioritize is we actually add in what's significant as well. We have to balance what's urgent and important, but more importantly, we identify what's significant. So when we prioritize, we look first and foremost at what is mission critical. And then we'll look at what's strategic and important, what's important but not essential, and what's externally initiated, like what's going to take care of itself. We don't focus on those, just like you were saying. I don't have to focus on those. I look at our top tier, and that has to start from what's mission critical, because that's what's going to get you off the X. That's what's going to save your life. That's what's going to allow you to help your teammate. Sure. Uh, sure. You know, so, well, it goes back to that saying, right, that we're taught also is in, in terms of priority, if, if, even you can apply this to the mission, right, is it's always what? It's, it's always team gear, platoon gear, then yourself. Right. Right. So you, we prioritize it that way and you can almost parallel everything off of that. So yeah. mission first before you, your own personal wants or needs because everyone's depending on your skill and for you to be there to accomplish your task. That's how we win. We don't win by ourselves, you know, so. Absolutely. And that's why so many people are struggling during this time because there are so many unknowns and this is a time of uncertainty. And I don't think enough people understand to focus on the mission critical things. They're being tempted to do a lot of things and everyone has these different ideas, which are good ideas, but they don't focus their energy toward the biggest priorities. And they get uh, kind of fixated in things that aren't really going to help. And like you said, you focus on what you can control. There's so many things we don't have control over. And if we start focusing our energy towards those, we're just going to end up in this downward spiral. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's the things we got to think about because there's a lot of uncertainty in what we do. <laughs> that's an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, being, I wasn't even a chief yet. I was about to make chief. I was the LPO for my platoon, but my chief was getting a surgery while we're at Nyland. So I was basically, hey, you're, you're now chief. So that was being fed through a fire hose because I didn't even have the time to come in and this be my second or third run and learning these lessons. Jocko was in charge of trade at the time. And one thing he was really good about doing was throwing at leadership all this mess of stuff in the middle of uh, the exercise that we're doing. And he would tempt you with, you know, the biggest thing in buds was, Hey, what's your head count? You know, and, and we constantly would be harassed by making sure we had full accountability on all our guys. So it's ingrained in your brain and it's a knee jerk reaction. So one of the things they did specifically when we're in the middle of a, a multi-sided attack in some little village in the middle of the desert there while we're training was they'd come up and be like, hey, what's your head count? And they want to see you go, oh, yeah, we need a head count. You know, while you're getting shot at by other people. Like, who cares about a head count while dudes right. are trying to blow you off the target? And they want to see, does this leader actually drop mission-critical things to focus on some ridiculous thing that doesn't matter? Like, head counts always matter. But at this moment, it's not the priority. It's not the priority. Yeah. Hey, you got a man down. Are you going to take care of this guy? All right. Well, the human side of me, yes. Let's everyone stop. Don't shoot at those guys. Let's fix. No, yeah. man. It's and like putting fight. an air mask on. You put yours on first, then you assist kids. Because if you're passed out and dead, you can't help anybody. You can't help anyone. And you know, it goes back to win the fight, right? Yeah, it does. Got to win the fight. That's a great lesson we learned, so that when we get overseas and we don't have control, and and man, the poop hits the fan real fast out there. As you learned on your first deployment. If you don't know how to instinctively prioritize under this pressure and figure out what's mission critical and start putting your energy toward that first and not focusing on these things that are, are a little important, but they're not significant. Well, you know, we, we have the benefit. When we were as SEALs, we had the benefit, right? Because we have a good grasp of training. We train, 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 and we train for worst case scenarios. So in the event that you ever were to experience that, not that I've ever did, I've, I've experienced more worst case scenarios in training than I did real world, right? Which but is because, refreshing because right, that's the way it should be. Right, because, but I had this repertoire of, our, of experiences that I could apply in a combat situation. I'm like, oh yeah, I've seen this before in training. Now, let me go ahead and see if it will work and apply it here and that. If not, I apply another piece and another. It's really a puzzle, right, when you're in combat because combat is, is it's conflict, it's uncertain, it's chaos. So you have to be able to take a step back as a leader 
and really see the big picture. It's like stepping on that balcony and looking down saying, Hey, okay, where are my pieces at? Um, right. So you and can have a better control of that. And the contingency side of the house, even when we make a decision, we're contingency planning that decision. Like as a chief, if I make a decision off my priorities, I'm gonna expect to get it wrong. You have to expect, hey, this might not work. So where's my backup plan gonna be? And that only makes it that much quicker that, nope, this isn't working. All right, reset. This is what we're doing now. And, and learning to communicate. So expect to get it wrong and to communicate uh, effectively and often as you need is important during those situations. Sure, and you know this, and most team guys know this, we only have three tactics right? Shoot, move, communicate. You yep. look at all those. The third one is pretty explicit, right? Communicate. Okay. It's communicate, but shooting is communicating and moving is communicating. If you look at it, it's 100% communicate. We have to continuously communicate in order to get our message across so that we can respond to whatever it is that we're trying to respond to. Or maybe sometimes we even know what's coming in. So we have to be able to respond and read and react appropriately. Yeah. And for people that are in sports or somebody that's in the corporate world, they too shoot, move and communicate. What shoot is, is that's you performing the job that you were uh, paid to do. Mm -hmm. Move is you being able to adapt to the situation, staying agile and being able to read and react. And that's through a lot of things, decision processes, prioritizing, using all these elements, but you can't stay static. You gotta, you gotta survive, you gotta get off that X and you have to adapt to situations like COVID. You can either fall apart and blame COVID or you can adapt and go crush it and do whatever you can to control what you can. And then obviously communicate, which comes like you said, in many different forms. It might be looking at the latest trends coming out. It might be looking at how my stakeholders feel. I communicate with them, keep them at peace, and then go talk to uh, my team. It's communicating inside and outside the organization. Sure. Big picture items. Being honest you is be honest. the most important part of communication. You can't, <laughs> you can't dress up a pig and be like, hey, it's beautiful. You know, you have to be honest. Unless you're talking about Miss Piggy. Come on. She is gorgeous. But no, seriously, communication is overstated, but it's underappreciated. Effective communication doesn't just mean you're, you're running your mouth. It's, it's in the actions you take, especially as a leader. And the things you don't say sometimes is good communication. Calmness yeah. is contagious, you talked about. Well, maybe not freaking out and whatnot is communicating to your people. We got this. It's, it's a level of confidence. Right. Right. And it goes back to when you get inserted, right? We're supposed to do our sills, right? Stop, right. look, listen, smell. You're assessing the situation before you make movement for what, about five, maybe 10 minutes to make sure that, hey, may, is there anyone out there that maybe heard us come in during our insertion? If not, we may have to cancel the mission or maybe press on. It depends, right? Depends on yeah. how mission critical it is. So always assess. Assessing is a continuous thing, continuous yeah. process. And we have go and no go criteria. You know, we only have this much ammo for this mission. And when we're on target, we're going to need X amount. So if we land and there's, there's a lot of booger eaters out there, we don't have the ammo to fight with them and fulfill the mission. That's a no go. All right. Yeah. All back, calling the birds. Let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. You know, what my favorite noise was during Sills. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we just got here. How are you? <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> Raise asleep again. Wake uh, again. <laughs> that, that's oh, more man. training, not so much on deployment. On deployment, everyone's pretty much awake for like 72 hours straight. Like there is no, hey, why don't you go take a nap? When we do those overnighters, nobody's sleeping, man. <laughs> it's like, no. I'm awake. I'm ready no. to go. Let's go. Let's do it. Yeah. So I remember that in training. Dudes would always seem to fall asleep during those. Like, are you kidding me? Guess who's getting wet? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. It doesn't end just after buds, man. You don't oh. think old team guys have to hit the surf? <laughs> you know, I, I would argue that it's actually harder, right? So the SEAL teams are, is much harder than buds. The buds, buds oh, does yeah. what it can to prepare you for what is to come. I've been, I remember in buds when the instructors, you will be colder in the SEAL teams than you are here. I'm like, there's absolutely no Couldn't way. There's no <laughs> way. And I was like, gosh, man, I am this is the coldest I've ever been ridiculous. I mean, to this day, Rob, when it gets really cold, I don't, I don't feel it here in Hawaii, but 
when I go, I, you know, I'll do some work in Seattle from time to time and my tips have been mildly frostbitten, right? Yeah. So they come back and they're just, they're aching. Mildly frostbitten. <laughs> oh, there's a mild frostbite or whatever you, however you want to say it. But, but they come back and my tips start to get white, right? When it gets yeah. really because of Kodiak, Alaska, or just some old cold places we've been, you know? So, right. Yeah. You know, Mark, uh, one of my business partners who's in class 215 with me, he, he's been through a few different hell weeks getting rolled and whatnot. So he got a lot of love in buds. But the reality is, is it seems like we stayed up a long time because, you know, hell weeks, five and a half days and you're up for almost that entire 125 hours. But during the initial invasion into Iraq in 2003, they were up for damn near 11 days with minimal, minimal, minimal sleep. At the most, you might have gotten a cat nap, but they were basically up for a lot, almost two hell weeks. So when yeah. they say you're going to be more tired in the teams and more cold in the teams than you are here in training. They are not kidding. They're not kidding. But you can handle it because, hey, I've been there. Yeah, you know, going back to my experience in my first deployment, there's something that you just brought up here, sparked up on memory. And we used to, we were running the streets, mm -hmm. block to block running, fully loaded out, right? Yeah, explain and to everybody what fully loaded out means. You're talking about, you know, I was a saw gunner, you know, squad automatic weapons gunners, a machine gun, right? right. So I had, three boxes of 200 round five, five, six chain link bullets. Right. And I had one in my backpack. So I'm super heavy body armor. You're talking about body armor, helmet, magazines up, you know, the yin yang, my gun that's has 200 rounds in it. And so people know too, Ray is a little dude. Like how much you weigh, Ray? <laughs> I'm about 150. And with his full loadout, especially for an AW gunner, I'm going to guess when you uh, weighed yourself, if you had to get on a heel and do the weigh-in, you were pushing 300 pounds, weren't you? Probably, Because, yeah. you know, I'm not just carrying my stuff. I'm not just carrying body armor bullets. I'm carrying a backpack, right, with right. water, with food, and more rounds, yeah. right? Because And batteries for the comms guy. So you're not just carrying your stuff. You're going to have to carry – we distribute the – you know, like the things we distribute is extra rounds and – extra batteries, right? And demo for the breachers. And right. So you have all this stuff. It's, it's, it's back crushing. It's it back is. crushing. And it's only about 120 degrees out there. now. And it's only 120 degrees and you're, and then you got to carry water and water is not light. Right. Right. And then, so something that, you know, I was thinking about, like we were running these streets. We're running from block to block to the point of exhaustion where team guys are puking. Like, you know, when we were in buds, guys are running. You think, oh, running the, the conditioning runs. Guys are running, and they're puking on the runs, right? Right. This is real-world stuff. Guys are puking because they've just pushed their body beyond the threshold that they're normally accustomed to. What buds has taught us, hey, we as normal human beings, there's a threshold. Buds pushes us past that threshold. Then when you go into combat, there's another threshold we, we've never really experienced. Right. So now we push ourselves to that threshold. We're puking on the run. The thing that would be in my mind is like one foot in front of the other, one yeah. foot in front of the other, make it, you can make it. It's just a constant battle internally up here in your head, right? It's a mental competition. You know, you're competing with your mind, your body and your mind are competing. Your body said, no, stop. But your mind says, no, we're going to die here. Get off the X. Right. Right. Um, but it's amazing. It's amazing to see, the human body when they work together, right? And then you're inspired by your fellow team guys. Like, I can't quit now. They depend on me. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not about it. And that's something we try to get through to people when we talk about even that armor we wear. I mean, you're 300 pounds, yet you're going to carry that extra plate on your front and back that weigh probably 20 pounds each. They're, they're ridiculously heavy. And, you know, there's movies that show people, you don't need that. You're not going to be running from the enemy. But the reality is, is you don't wear those to save your life in battle. You wear those to keep you in the fight so you can keep fighting for your teammates. Correct. So you're going to sacrifice that extra weight and you're going to push yourself because when your boys are pushing it just as hard for you, man, it's inspiring, but there's no way you're going to not push yourself. Yeah. And you know, with that, when we, when we see that of each other, when you see a guy putting out in combat, especially that inspires you to say, you know what? I will die for that guy. Right. Because he's putting out. 
I'm going to put out. And that's why a lot of people don't understand. Like, it's not that we embrace death or we we're we're like, like we want to die or anything. None of us want to die. Right. But right. we embrace the fact that there's always that possibility in this job. We can die. But if we're going to die, let's do it the right way. And that is to protect the guy to my left and my right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's the epitome of Mikey Monsoor, man, who uh, was one of your closest friends. I knew him from being in buds with him, but his story, you know, I share his story often with clients. And if you don't know who Mikey Monsoor is, uh, he is a Medal of Honor recipient who actually sacrificed himself for his teammates by jumping on a grenade. And I'll let Ray share more of the specifics on that. And as much as I'd like to think that's me. I would do that. Man, uh, there's no way to test that in people. There's no way to train that in people. But what we do in training and how we prepare our guys builds a culture and this mentality so strong that it's been proven that under the circumstance, when that happens, there's no hesitation. And your teammate, he comes to the fight for you. Yeah. You know, and you know what that really comes down to is, is love. It is right, and it's 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 love for your brother and your sister, you know. Like I, it's it was mainly guys, but eventually down the road we had women in the you know contrary we, to popular belief we, we had, had women. The female uh, yeah. teams that came out and they sure. were amazing. Yeah, amazing. They like team guys, uh, and they yeah. they were able to get so much done that we couldn't do because we can't interact with women and children on target. And they fought their way in to get on target with us. And then mm -hmm. they were amazing at what amazing extract amazing from this Intel source that we had no access to before, yeah. but go and uh, share with everybody what occurred with, with Mikey. Yeah. I, uh, so, you know, I wasn't on that operation that day. It was one of the last operations we're about to rip out a country. So we're about to redeploy back to the U S right. So um, some of us stayed back to start packing up the ice, he uses the storage bins, right? One of the things is that, you know, Mikey and I, just leading up to this real quick, is that, you know, he was an AW gunner and a comms guy. So you're talking about weight, right, earlier on. Yeah. You're talking about he's carrying his own ammo and he's carrying a radio. I think it was a PRC-138 or something like that. So he's carrying all this weight. And typically when you're at point, when you're doing a patrol at point, you have the point man who just has it. He has an M4 with him, right? Right. Mikey walks point with our point man, because why he has the 48, yeah. right? He's rocking the 48 and that was his job. And Mikey would always be there. I mean, think about this for a second. If you step back before Mike was awarded the medal honor and did because of his actions on that day, you know, September 29th, 2006, you know, where he jumped on the grenade is that he was awarded a silver star months prior to that. Right. Right. Because don't know about that. Right. We're engaged on the streets, dangerous streets where literally when the army says, hey, you will be engaged 30 minutes into the operation. That was our daily life. We knew that was coming. And, you know, bullets are flying everywhere, hitting, you know, near your feet, you know, the wall next to you. And you're like, surprise, it's just not hitting you yet. You know what I'm saying? And here's Mikey. One of our guys got shot in the leg and he goes out there dragging him, just unleashing his 48. Right. And that is what got him the silver star yeah right? and that was just one character and one action that he did there was tons more and, and then that led up to that i'm sorry that led up to that day on the roof in the mulav district of ramadi yeah go ahead and share that before i make the statement i was about to make what i know of that is based on my discussions with the team guys who were there and the AAR, basically they were doing a sniper overwatch. That's where we go in, we set overwatches on top of buildings, and then we basically provide overwatch for a movement force like the army, a clearance force that's coming through so that we can engage enemy if necessary, right? That is, is positioning or maneuvering on that, that clearance force. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we did. We provided a sort of a security bubble as snipers, and AW gunners, this, that, and the other. And we're just continuously looking for bad guys. They just happen to, and that's what we did throughout the deployment. And one day, I, I guess an insurgent found a gap where they weren't observing and he tossed a grenade over, over the wall, which bounced off Mikey's chest, right? We all know the story, right? He bounced off his chest. Um, he saw it, two guys to left, which was Mike and Doug. And again, he could have, like you said, he could have escaped that. Like he could have just said, screw that, I'm out. 
Right. There was a stairwell right there. He could have popped. Yeah. And he, he jumped on it. He jumped on it. Now, you know, people say that the guys to his left and right, but there was guys behind him too. Yeah. There was Iraqi soldiers up there with him. Yeah. You know, there's Benny was there also on the roof with him. So had he not smothered it with his own body, it would have hurt more people, if not kill more people. Right. So, I mean, we're talking about two people who are actually injured by that grenade in addition to Mike, right? If had not smothered himself, there would have been more, most definitely, you know, because, you know, grenades, you know how it is when they, they go outwards, right? Right. Um, they don't just say, okay, I'm going to just, and they, and they have a distance, right? Wherever the, the blast radius is. Yeah. So the fact that he did that and explains who Mikey was, again, to your point, I don't know if I would have ever done it. I don't know. I've never been put, put in that position. You know, so no one knows until they're in that right. position. And, and Mikey was that kind of guy, obviously. Yeah. And he, he proved that throughout the entire deployment. And I share a lot of his stories of what he accomplished during that deployment. And then I tell everybody, by the way, this was his first deployment. He was a brand new guy. And that's just, that's amazing when you look at that. Uh, to give yourself some credit right here, after that occurred with him, things that occurred with Job getting shot and Mark Lee and whatnot, being able to show up the next day after these things were occurring and to keep focused and keep bringing it to the enemy. That that's an amazing feat by task unit bruiser and what they were able to accomplish. I mean, the enemy, they were trying, (laughs) they were trying their damnedest to keep control of Ramadi and you guys changed the course of the war. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was it was us as a team, a collective team of the Army, the Marines, the men and women of all the services, even the Air Force. Right. There's Navy people out there too, CBs and combat camera. But we were, you know, as SEALs, we were a we weren't even a percentage, a speck on the map. It was just two platoons and in two different parts of the city. So we provided a lot of value to them because we're force multipliers. We got assets here and there. Right. And here's an interesting thing, Rob, throughout the entire deployment, we knew the engagement that we were going to get into. We were going to duke it out. We're going to slug it out with real slugs, right? Like lead. We're going to, you know, toss 3000 feet per second of lead poisoning at each other. And this was constant. This was daily. And what we did notice where we did see the shifts, what they call the Sunni awakening at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or the Ambar awakening. It was called the Ambar awakening and then the Sunni awakening is between there somewhere. But we would go out on a couple operations and what we started to realize is that no one wanted to fight us, yeah. right? Because they, the only thing that this made us different was our kit, the body armor that we wore. Because we actually ditched our uniforms and started wearing army uniforms. So we would blend in with the army and they wouldn't know who we are. The only thing is we didn't have body uh, army body armor right right so you know the enemy knows who like oh who's these guys they have a different body armor on and they eventually knew who we were i don't think people appreciate that even when i was in afghanistan in 2009 they weren't quite sure what seals were but they called us sea warriors because of our posture we looked and acted different and when we deployed in 2009 they finally came out with a scar and they gave us all scars because they were 762. The M4 cannot engage in an effective battle at the distances they were staying away from us. And we were trying to go in and change what was happening in the Helmand province because they were about to send 40,000 Marines out there and they wanted us to surgically strike some of the nastiest areas and clean that up. Mm-hmm. But the enemy were like, these aren't army guys. And they started to figure it out and they wouldn't come within 600 meters of us. They would try to annoy us with some shots from a long distance away, but they, they knew we were different and called us. Oh, yeah. It just goes to show what that culture is like when you have these different principles and you, you all of a sudden have this different posture about yeah. yourself. It, it, it's known. And it's interesting you say that because, you know, I went to Afghanistan and to Helmand, the Helmand area also. And as one of the team leads out there, people would come to me and they would say, hey, who are you guys? And, you know, I didn't say we were Navy SEALs. I said, Navy oh, we're SEALs special. here to get you out. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, we're special forces. And we just relieved, by the way, we just relieve a, uh, a special 
an ODA team, which is an Operational Detachment Alpha team, or Special Green Forces, Berets. Team, Green yeah. Berets. We just relieved one of them. So people would ask me, hey, who are you guys? I'm like, oh, we're Special Forces. And like, they're, you're not Special Forces. You guys are meaner, right? <laughs> 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 like, well, what did I tell them? I said, well, we're, we're Navy SEALs. And interestingly enough, they knew what that was. And you're right. To your point, they called us the Sea Warriors. And, you know, I, would, I was helping with the intelligence side. And ODA, or Green Berets, they have intelligence operators, right, that collect information, this, that, and the other. So I was kind of doing sort of some of those things. And one of the Taliban commanders that I had, he, there was a name for it. There was a name for the Sea Warrior. Yeah. And he goes, Zamanare Zoach. I remember that to the, to this day. I was like, wow, wow, that's that's pretty cool. Zamanare Zoach. I'm gonna get that tattooed. <laughs> yeah, he, he goes, yeah, the Sea Warriors. And he knew what the Sea Warriors had done to Bin Laden. Yeah. So because he was crossing the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So you know, so it was pretty interesting. But to take this back and to validate, and we're not saying anything bad about other militaries, but no, not at all. Not forces at all. do not, they don't operate exactly the same way we do, and they don't experience as much training as we do. Like, I think the thing that really separates the SEALs some, sometimes is our quality of training and the personnel we have training us. We just have some of the best training in the world. And the reason why we're so effective is what we were talking about earlier is, is performing under pressure. And when the enemy starts attacking us and harassing us and trying to get us to start looking at the shiny objects, we don't take the bait. We prioritize on what is mission critical right now. We stay focused. We stay driven. They try to uh, attack our men or we have some massive disturbances on losing some of our guys, yet we stay laser focused and we keep going along our process the way we train to do it. Right. We train so that we fought like we trained, and, mm -hmm. and it shows up on deployment. It's, it's not because we're better than everyone. It's just because the way we trained, we have it programmed to respond a certain way, sure. regardless of what they throw at us. Yeah. Well, no, the SEAL teams is a tool. It you is. Know, we, it is a tool. It's a specific kind of tool. And... I've argued this point with other units. I'm like, we are a DA force. We're we bred are. to be a DA. There's a direct action force, which we are There's a hammer. No argument in there. When SOCOM came out, every department picked their specialty. The Green Brace picked unconventional warfare, which is what they did to go in they're there. They're good at it. And they're good at it. The Taliban out of power. They, they go in there and they disrupt governments. We chose direct action. We didn't know that the world would turn into what it did, and most of the work was going to be direct action. We were going to get heavily employed, but we played the well, stock market well back then, and well, we picked by, direct action. By the nature of our just sea warrior-ness, right. maritime operations, everything maritime is DA. Whether you're going on a ship, you're doing a DA. Good point. Whether yeah. you're going on a go plat, a gas oil platform, that's a DA. So by the nature of what we did anyway, it made sense for us to do it. It did. Right? So, and I don't um, think we even knew back then that we'd be on land as much as we are, but we were prepared for that. And definitely our guys that went into Vietnam set us up for success because what they were yeah. able to do in Vietnam with small numbers hey, was impressive. To that, to that I'm, I'll argue this. We're not great soldiers. We're, we're not, we're not even that. soldiers, right? We're, we're we not. don't make great soldiers because I've been confronted with a uh, uh, not confronted. We had this discussion with a Green Beret, and I didn't know half the things he was talking about, but soldiering, right? No, I think it's uh, kind of funny that just recently, in probably the past ten years, we got better at talking sure. with some of the army leadership because they have. I mean, it's almost like you need to take courses on how they diagram off their mission. Like our mission planning is some PowerPoints that we put together and there's some maps on there and we got some moving parts sometimes, but we don't actually have legends of all the different specific um, elements that you have to put in there and what each element means and some of the symbology, you know, like we were not good at that. And I mm -hmm. forgot half of them that I had to learn just so I can talk to some of the sure. army, army generals where we're pitching our plans. But yeah, when it comes to basic soldiering skills, we're lacking in a lot of that because we just don't know that. We just know how to kick down a door and, uh, you know, get, crush, 
You know how to crush things. <laughs> and, you know, going back to uh, my first deployment, that's what we did. We did a lot of raids too. And that's just overwatches. We did a lot of raids going house to house, just crushing things, you know, and they knew, they knew who we were. We actually set the tone and, Hey, this is who we are. Don't mess with us, but they still mess with us. And to the point I was at getting earlier is we noticed a lull in the fights where it started to diminish. Right. And yeah. then when we got relieved, the next team kind of took over. It wasn't as bad. And then what, 2000, I don't know, 2008, there was a marathon in Ramadi. That's ridiculous. I was like, a marathon? Kidding me? With people, you know, like the army, they were running. <laughs> they did a, a marathon in Ramadi, that's in the Mulab, Maram, the Ramadi city or whatever, without body armor, without guns. I was like, wow, that's amazing. It is. You know, so. It says a lot. It says a lot. You know, so, you know, people say, well, war, you know, yeah, war is ugly. It's brutal. It's chaotic. But if it's worth fighting for if that's if you want people to be free and and, you know, peace is worth fighting for. It is. Yeah, I, mean, I was just uh, Googling some of the symbology and the little <laughs> the symbols they use because you got me thinking about that again and what a nightmare it was. Because as a chief, I had to actually uh, brief some of these guys and I had to start learning some of them. And it, it's hilarious when you look at it. It's like, oh, my God, this is a whole nother language, especially for us. <laughs> It was just a nightmare, but our, our leadership got smart on it because that was their role, man. They had mm -hmm. to get us work, so they had to play that part. Even though no team guy wants to do that side of the house, <laughs> no one wants to know how to network computers. You don't want to be the guy in deployment, hey, go go network these computers for us, but you know that, that's a job that has to be done, so some of our guys have to get smart on that. Hey, we got good at it, though. We do get good at it. I'm not, I mean, if... If they give us a something, I mean, they give us a project or a mission, we will take it apart and understand everything about it. And I actually apply that skill today. If I yeah. want to understand something, I will take that apart, rebuild it, take it apart again, rebuild it until I understand every working piece in there. That's uh, a key element for being successful. So before we get off, and I'm going to have to smooth you to be on another podcast with us one day because there's so much information we can talk to. Uh, a lot of lessons I think you've learned that would be beneficial for our listeners to hear about. But right now, you're studying leadership, and we've talked a lot today on just how critical it is for leaders to, to lead through crisis and uncertainty. Just off the top of your head, what do you think is one of the most important qualities in a leader since you've got some experience in it and you're getting a proper education in it? <laughs> well, first and foremost, I'm going to tell you this, Rob, I don't need an education. Not that I'm a smart guy, but you really don't need an education to tell you that you're smart piece right. of paper. Right. I would say, you know, as a leader there, you know, you got to understand leadership is different from management. And, you know, I was reading a Marine Corps book and it, it distinguishes the difference, right? You lead people and you manage things, stuff, yeah. right? As soon as, as soon as you start managing people, that is when you run into problems, right? Because people don't like to be managed. People are, they're dynamic. They move, they make their own decisions. So the best thing you can do as a manager is give them the left and right flanks and say, hey, besides don't get me fired, don't kill anyone, don't break the laws. I don't care how you get it done. Be innovative, get it done, right? That's what a leader should do. As a, leader, a leader is really a bridge or, you know, to, is to provide that bridge between one, any gaps in between, right? From one right. ledge to the next. And if I would say the quality is, there's a lot of qualities, that's just not one, right? You have to yeah. be, you have to be loved. You gotta love your people. You have to trust your people. You have to be empathetic to their needs. And you know, you can't say, hey, I'm the leader, I'm gonna lead. You actually have to, you're a support mechanism for them so they can accomplish whatever it is that you want them that needs to be accomplished. Yeah, um, you have to be able to connect with people. If you can't yeah. connect with people, you are not a leader. Yeah. A, a great leader is seeing the other side of someone else, right? And that's what we have in our society. We don't like to see the other side. And here's a good point. I sat in front of, I've interviewed a lot of bad people downrange, people who'd want to kill me across from me. If they had the chance, if they had a gun in hand or a knife, they probably, you know, do what they have to do because they think I am the enemy. And what I would do is I would build rapport, find some common ground. I'm saying, hey man, hey, look at this picture. This is my wife. This is my kid. I'm, I'm starting to humanize myself, 
right? I'm this, I'm not this big bad guy that you think, oh, he's a real nice guy. And before you know, we have this wonderful conversation. Instead of him leading me, I led him to me. Right. I led the change. To, so it's about, there's a lot of qualities. It's not, it's not one, Rob. I can't tell you, hey, this one's better than the other. You have to employ them all. It, it would be a hard argument to say any one is better than the other. Yeah. Uh, they all tie together. They're all tied. Yeah. Yeah. But it's understanding the human condition, I think. Right. And that people want to be led. They don't want to be managed. If you can put that, if you can put your mind on that, people want to be led. They want to be inspired. 100%. Yeah. And, and since I've been out and especially working with a lot of organizations, I think one of the things I really respect about the SEAL community, our leaders always try to take responsibility. Yeah. And I'll leave obviously it as- there's always some that are out there that yeah. run into that. But I think overall, generally speaking, in the military in general, because I think that's leadership 101 in the military, but in the teams especially, because mm-hmm. I can't talk for other services and I, I've sure. heard horror stories from other services, but I think our leaders do a great job at taking that responsibility. And one of the things I heard somebody say is instead of our people won't, great leaders say we haven't led them to dot, 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 right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. that mentality as a leader. And that's what allows you to build that connection and allows others to give you that trust to come to you with things. Sure. You know? You can yeah. make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't do both. Yeah. I guess if I was to sum it up in one word or two words, um, be a servant leader, right? A servant leader are those who are serving the people to accomplish whatever they need to get done. Right. Yeah. If I could go back and do it again, I would be, I wish I would, I would be more of a servant leader. You know, it, it seems paradoxical. I mean, how can a leader be a servant? But really, it's you're serving those so that uh, you're serving others so that they can do what they need to do. Yeah. Right? And you said something, I think we all talk about if we can only go back and do these things we now know, and that's, that's the reality though. we learn these lessons along the way from experience, man, you know, serving others is really how things got done. All the elements that go along with serving others on the framework that you build with the trust and the commitment people have for working with and for you, it's it's powerful yeah, yeah i agree very powerful very good man hey i appreciate uh you sharing so much with us today where uh where can people find you ray on social media or learn more about things you're involved with because i know you're involved in a lot of different things with uh, struggling vets and <clears throat> and with children as well yeah i don't have a i have a facebook but i don't have a huge social media presence i mean i, I i'm not on there a lot Maybe I should get on there more often, but you know, if you ever want to, I mean, I have a Twitter and I don't tweet much, but if you want me to, I can. Um, you will now start to tweet. <laughs> Raise nuggets. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I could put a couple nuggets out there. Just my thoughts, you know, my thoughts are, are, is, will be primarily positive. Right. So, I mean, if you want to, I have an Instagram account. It, it's Ray Baviera actual. I guess my handle is frogman.chief. And then uh, I, have, I do have a Twitter. It's Ray Bavier at Ray Bavier underscore actual. And nice. I'm wondering how to spell my last name. It's B-A-V-I-E-R-A. So, um, and, and that's R-E-Y. And that is R-E-Y. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm not like a ray of light. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should be like a ray of light. That's okay, man. I know it's R-E-Y, but when you call me, it says R-A-Y on my phone. Oh, man. Truth, you know, truth be told, I got a cousin <laughs> rate. It spells it R A Y, so it's uh, it's my fault. I apologize, but I right. did type it right on uh, on my emails, so that's what's important. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, absolutely, that's what's important. Almost didn't suck. All right, so. Yeah. If you've got questions, thoughts, comments, or concerns, or you got an idea for a topic, you can reach out to us at info at apg that is all we have for you today. Uh, thank you, Ray, for being on with us. If you'd like Absolutely. to see what we're up to at APG, you can check out our website at www.apg.team. And if you like what we're putting out, you can feel free to subscribe to this channel so you can get our latest in a timely fashion. And you can also 
subscribe for our weekly Tuesday tip of the week, which is chock full of perspectives and ideas. And it's only about a minute or two minute long read. So share these ideas with your friends because the world needs hitters. So as the sun sets slowly in the east, we'll leave you with the wise words of football legend Lou Holtz, who said, ability is what you are capable of doing. Motivation determines what you do, but attitude determines how well you do it. I am smart, capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not.